worship team. Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you this morning. And if you'll take your Bible today, we're going to be talking about biblical authority, one of the core values that we believe in. Those core values you see in your worship folder on that uh, on the page there are the values that we took way back in June, July, and August of this last previous year in 2012. They were the common core values that were between the staff, the elders, and the congregation. And these are the five ones that are in common with each other. And so these are the things that drive our very church. They drive the budget. They drive every audit line. They drive every program. If our programs don't at least embrace one or two of these values, then we have to ask ourselves, why are we doing it? So these are very, very important that you get these down. It's the very, the very questions that we're asking the new candidate for the new pastor come right out of these core values. And so everything that's done has been to look for a man of God who uh, embraces these core values because this is who we are. And we want to see that match occur. So continue to keep these in prayer and for sure to make sure that if there's something in your life that needs attention, that you pay attention to that as well. Today we're in a tremendous cultural war. For truth, it's amazing. I mean, the battle is on. It seems like uh, you have to be very careful of anybody you criticize these days to not be, it could be politically incorrect for you to criticize certain groups, but there's one group that you can just take open season on, and that's the Christians. Uh, they're just open season. You just go whack away all you want. And I think it's because we turn the other cheek. We don't fight. We don't get, we don't turn around and go to the courts and sue people. And we don't, we don't riot. We don't take guns and armor and start throwing bombs in streets and lighting fires and overturning cars like some of the other groups do. We, uh, we turn the other cheek and we love people. We forgive them. And people take our message from the Bible and they twist it, they turn it, they compromise it, they say what it doesn't mean, they pick a passage completely out of context and turn it around and say, how can anybody be politically correct? In fact, Christianity is made now one of the strategies of the very left, the very radical left, is to show that Christianity is a hate religion. We're in some serious times, folks. And at stake of the whole issue, this is what the whole issue was, is that back in the 1900s, there was a real compromise on Scripture to say that the Scripture was not inspired or inerrant. Once you take away the inspiration and the inerrancy of the Bible, compromise is at hand. And then all of a sudden, you're not left with nothing, with a Bible that's simply just a, a piece of literature and criticized like every other piece of literature. Our Bible is inspired and it's inerrant. It's the very soul of God. It is, it is, we're going to find out that it is actually the breath of God. As He expired His words, it is the breathed out Word of God upon mankind. And it becomes at the very core of our life to make sure that that is what guides and directs our life. And so with that in mind today, I want to talk about biblical authority. I want you to take your Bible and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. If not, look up on the screen. But you must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. You know they are true. For you know you can trust those who taught you. 
You've been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood. And they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. There's something. You see, if you don't believe the Bible is true, if you don't believe it's errant, you don't believe it's inspired, you don't believe that in that whole issue, then the salvation that comes from Christ is not part of the story. It's just a figment of someone's imagination. But verse 616 is incredibly powerful. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us what, to, what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip His people to do every good work. It is a revelation and the inerrant Word of God. All Scripture is inspired by God. It is an inspired revelation, first of all. I love the words of Jesus, especially in the Ryrie Study Bible. When it comes to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, He says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law, until all is accomplished. In John 10.35 he said, If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, cannot be broken. It is the very breath of God. Paul, in his words elsewhere that even come out of Strong's Concordance, talk about that it is divinely breathed. He uses the word theophanos, which means the, the expiration of God. Not so much the inspiration, but it's our word to say it's inspired, but it was the expired breath of God, breathed out, as it were, from the very essence of who God is. This is His word. This is what people don't want to hear. It's tied with the, with the verb phano, which means to breathe hard or to blow steady. It also is many times coupled in so many times with verbiage as an adverbial noun, which means a primary verb to breathe or from which one denotes a properly forcible respiration as if it's just being something like somebody going, just constantly poured over humanity. And with God breathing that out on us, it's a wonder why we don't take the Word of God more seriously. To know that these are just not some words from a few guys who hung around for a while and thought it might be good to write down some traditions. It's the very breath of God. Not only an inspired revelation, but it's an intellectual revelation. It's an interesting thing from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. It says, Regard and to, re, to regard the patience of our Lord to be with salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in his letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, and listen to this, which the untaught and unstable distort. Man, what a prophecy for today. They take it, they distort it, they drag it through the mud, they make us sound like we're hate mongers as they do also to the rest of the Scriptures, and then it says, to their own destruction. Oh, my brother, it is so true. Be careful what you do. God is not mocked. A lot of mocking going on today. And the result of that is destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest being carried away by the error of unprincipled men. 
you fall away from your own steadfastness. It's so easy today. I see it with our young people. I see it with the millennials. For them, there is no... For them, for many of them, there's no objective propositional truth. There's only relative truth. Why? Because the Word of God was surrendered in the 1900s to think that it was, it was fallible. It wasn't inspired. A great compromise hit. But Dillon Community Church continues to march in the tradition that says, this is the Word of God. It is inspired and is errant. And we will preach from it as, and know that it is the very breath of God breathing out upon us. No wonder David said, Oh, I was so glad when they said unto me, Let us go into the house of the Lord. Why? He was going to hear the word. So much of today's church is what I call church light. Now I realize that, you know, I'm all for the multimodal services in terms of experiencing God. I know there are churches in Denver that have, during the time where a pastor makes a real strong point, they have smoke come out. I, I, well, I wanted to do that a couple of times. I thought that would be really cool. Maybe a lightning flashes in the background. You know, you kind of get the whole senses involved with this sucker. You know, it would be great. You know? But then you'd probably start bowing down and kissing rings and all that kind of garbage. Now, you know, here's the deal. It can be definitely experienced by all our senses. But you don't surrender the Word. It is an intellectual revelation. This is not for the... For, you know, I would say that inerrancy is not for the dummies. It's not for those who, who need a crutch, who've never done the investigation. If you want a great book, look at Josh McDowell's book, both volumes, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, Volume 1 and Volume 2. In Volume 2, he takes the liberals to their task to show the inerrancy of the Word of God. Read that. Devour it. There's so many quotes in there. It'll just make your head spin. Of men throughout the world who document this and understand this, that this is the Word of God. One pastor put it this way. He said, I serve on the board of trustees for the Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary as a representative from the Missouri Baptist Convention. I am now the vice chairman of the board. Okay. He makes a motion several years ago that every professor coming onto the faculty had to write a position paper outlining their view of Scripture and supporting the inerrancy and inspiration of the Word of God before they could be accepted on the faculty. Good for them. Not only does Golden Gate do it, Denver does it, Dallas does it, Gordon Conwell does it, Trinity does it, and many other evangelical seminaries throughout the United States and through the world because they know that this is God-breathed revelation. Not only an inspired revelation, not only an intellectual revelation, it's also an inclusive revelation. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, it says, Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and spoke from God. The word move there is an aquatic term, which means to, like a sail having its sail filled with wind. And these, these, these men that wrote were filled with the Holy Spirit and moved within their own personality to write down the things that God breathed out. 
All Scripture is inspired by God. Did you know that every major Bible translation has that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16? It doesn't vary. Every translation, every transliteration has the same phrase. All Scripture is inspired and given by God. Every one of them. In fact, in 1987, one of the evangelical conventions, conventions reported the action was they created a peace committee instructed to follow their faith and message statement from the 1963 era in regard to theological issues. And although it had 17 issues, there was only one that was featured. You know what it was? Their view on Scriptures. They said this, quote, The Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is the record of God's revelation to Himself to man. It is the perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture or error. For its matter, it reveals the principle by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world, the true center of the Christian union, the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. The criterion by which the Bible is to be interpreted is Jesus Christ. And most evangelicals will say today, in fact, many of them have pulled away from their mainline denominations to form a, a more evangelical part of that, of that denomination. Why? Because they want to see truth without any mixture of error for its matter. They believe in the direct creation of mankind and therefore believe Adam and Eve were real people. They believe that the named authors did indeed write the biblical books that were attributed to them. They believe that the miracles actually happened and that they were miracles. They believe that the historical narratives given by the biblical authors are indeed accurate and reliable as given by those authors. Literature has a test, by the way. It's called the bibliographical material or bibliographical test. What it does is it takes the actual authorized documents, the originals that were written in that day from that person, and then it's measured to when we have the first manuscript of that period of time. Now, you can have some of the, the oracles of some of the Roman emperors way back up to a thousand, you know, back in, in the days of a thousand uh, BC and, and 900 and 700 BC and some of those things there. And you could go all the way back in your history books, way back to the 1400 BC. And you can come forward. We have in, 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 in some of the writings of, of those periods of times, we have one original. One original. And then it's, it's, it's 2,300 years later, we find the first copy of what was back here. And we have six copies of that. And all six copies disagree with the original. Yet we claim that we study history, this is solid truth. We have the history of Caesar and the Caesars. We have two originals. We have 25 copies, 900 years later. Of those 25 copies, 23 of them disagree very violently on what the series it was. But yet we teach our children in school the history of Caesar, and we say it's reliable. Do you know what the most reliable book is today from history? Because they didn't have the Library of Congress in those days. They didn't have it down on discs. They weren't put on, on CDs. The most reliable book you have is the New Testament. After the Dead Sea Scrolls were 
were found, we found that we had autographs. Did you know that we have over 4,000, 4,000 manuscripts that were taken off the originals? 4,000. And the earliest date is only 35 years between the original and the time that we have the first writing of the manuscript. And you know those 4,000? No one disagrees. Except for little minor issues of where some vowel pointing might be or where some periods might be put or where chapter divisions might be. But it doesn't change the theology of it all. The Bible is more reliable than your history book. I used to speak on this as I traveled for Campus Crusade back in the day when my when I was younger and my hair was down to my shoulders and had my Willie Nelson headband on, I can remember being in Kansas City, Kansas City, uh, Kansas, speaking to uh, a high school. And after I was done, they had their history primers laying on the floor, <laughs> saying, "We don't need to pick it up. It doesn't even. It's not even truth." The school board was extremely upset with me. You see, we don't do the research, do we? But it's there. This Bible that you have right here, you can trust it. It is God-breathed, God-anointed, God-scented. And it is inerrant and inspired in every detail that it has to say. And it shouldn't just be something to be our guide. It should be the actual authority of all matters of faith and practice in our life. It's an inclusive revelation. An inclusive revelation. But it's also, too, there are some rewards with it. And this, I think, is interesting. I think rewards in the inerrant Word of God, it is there for cultivation. Notice it says it's for the, for the purpose of doctrine. Or in our, our, in, in our phrase, it talks about, it tells us what to do, what's right. It's profitable for teaching, it says in the NASB. For, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. So let's talk about it's profitable for teaching. We have this book, and this teaching that it comes, we want it to be reliable. We use it for teaching on, to teach us about marriage, to teach about us how to run a church. There's doctrine on there about how you, how you select partners in life. In marriage it says, don't be unequally yoked. I've performed over 500 marriages in, in, my, in my day. That's a lot of weddings. And you say, well, how many had you have to turn down? Not as many as I've married, but I had to turn a lot. I bet over 100 couples they sat and they said, well, I know Jesus Christ, my personal Savior, and I'm hoping that my, my, my wife intended. And I said, I sure hope to, but right now I can't do the ceremony. Why? Because the Bible says you can't be unequally yoked to somebody. I have hope that she comes to know Christ. I've seen her where the girl was a Christian, and she was hoping that she'd witness to this guy, and he'd come to faith. As a minister of the gospel, this is the Word of God. This is not something I take lightly. This is not something I'm trying to offend somebody with. It's not something where I say, oh, good. Oh, God says, don't make me a lick yoke. Boy, can I really make some couples mad. I can't wait to tell them, you guys have got to break up. <laughs> what do you think's going on for me? It breaks my heart to look at them. They've fallen in love. They truly care about each other. But the Bible says, no. No. You're not to be unequally yoked. Oh, well, that's, that's old-fashioned. And that doesn't matter. And that shouldn't be. 
Really? So you know more than God. You're greater than God. You have the last say. By George, why were we listening to God in the first place? You've got all the goods. Of course, God didn't mean that. I'm trying to make a point, my beloved, this morning. The seriousness of God's Word, and it says that it's for righteousness' sake. As I sit with these couples, my heart breaks. And they say, well, what, could, what can you do? What, what happens if I become a Christian? I said, well, that's a game changer. But I said, please don't go out of here and pretend that you accepted Christ so that I'll marry you. Would you really like to know if Jesus is Lord? Yes, I would. And it's been my pleasure in many of those instances, well into the majority of those, where the young man or the young woman has said, you know what? Dr. G, this, this is true, isn't it? Jesus did die for the world. That means he's got a claim on me. Yes, he does. What are you going to do with it? And there in a Starbucks, yeah, even in a Starbucks, <laughs> heads are bowed and eyes are closed. And eternities and destinies are changed. See, the Word of God will cultivate a soul. Not because it's a book of literature, but because it's God-breathed and anointed. A second thing that, that it does, it criticizes. Yeah, it does. It's for reproof. It tells you when you're wrong. The elders are going to speak to you on unity next week. I'm sure you can't wait. This is going to be good. They're going to preach. I think some of these guys are wannabe preachers. I really do, yeah. Now, I want you to tell you, a couple of them wanted to sing, but I've spared you from that, okay? A couple of them wanted to sing, but I've spared you. But it's going to be good to listen to them, hear what they have to say. You see, the, the Scripture does criticize at times. Paul, in chapter 4 of Philippians, says, Hey, what's going on with Yudia and Sintachi? Two women in the church who can't get along. Not right. That's criticism. Scripture criticizes us when, Hey, you want to get straightened out with your brother? Then take the plank out of your eye before you go get the, the little splinter in his. <laughs> that's, critic, that's criticism. The Word of God can criticize. It also can correct. And I think this is interesting. Not only is it the refutation of error and reproof, but it's also for the ratification and rectification and correction of life. But unfortunately, many American homes, yes, even so-called Christian homes, are like the one in which the little girl came in one day and pointed to the Bible on the mantle, which had never been opened in their house, and said to her mother, whose book is that? Her mother, quite startled by her daughter's question, replied, Why, honey, don't you know that is, the, that is God's book? The child, demonstrating that she had a very practical turn to her mind, said, Well, don't you think that we had better give it back to him? Nobody around here ever reads it. I hope that's not true at your, at your house. It's God-breathed revelation. It's at the core of this church. 
If you're uniting with this church, you can be absolutely assured that what comes from the pulpit is the preached out Word of God. And it's not coming to you by suggestion. It's coming to you so it'll cultivate in your life, it'll criticize your life, it'll correct your life, and finally, number four, it will train you in righteousness. It's training. It's like, it's like talking about a train. The Bible says, yep, there's a train and there's tracks. That's doctrine. Criticism is, hey, you're off the track. Correction is, here's how to get back on the track. And training in righteousness is, here's how to stay on the track. Did you know that Lewis Berry Schaefer, one of the great professors of Dallas Theological Seminary, actually took the Bible and arranged the entire Bible into four categories? Yeah, doctrine, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So you know which book you were in. Now, true, he broad-stroked it, and some of those books could have fit in either other category. But isn't that a marvelous exercise? And so we see that in this biblical authorities, we see for you and I, as we take the Word of God and we say, this is more than just a suggestion. It's more than just coming when we have a decision to be making in our family and we say, hey, let's see what the Bible has to say. And by the way, let's put down Cosmopolitan magazine. Let's see what our horoscope says. Really? You're putting the Bible on the same level as the horoscope? No, in the Christian mindset, the core value for the Christian is that the Word of God trumps everything. It becomes the, it becomes the authority in all matters of faith and practice. Wow. So that we might be trained. Joshua 1.8 says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate it on a day and night, so that you might be careful to do accordingly all that is written in it, and then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. There's education, there's training, there's reproof, there's correction, there's chastening, there's training in righteousness. We get that righteousness from the instruction of God's Word, and we get that righteousness from the impact of God's Word. Wow. And so, as the elders come next week and they talk about unity, okay, there's a doctrine of unity. There's a criticism about unity. Some of you are not getting along, he says to these two ladies. So he says, what's the correction? Stop it and let the Word of God be the counsel. Let that be the issue. And then the training in righteousness, he says one important thing. As I was going through this passage, it was marvelous. He said, you know what the main byproduct of unity is in the church? It's joy. You see, when a, when a church is unified, there's great joy. A church is not unified when somebody says, well, okay, it looks like I have to submit. looks like you win, I lose. That's not joy. I don't know what that is, but it's not joy. It's not unity either. It's not when you, when you, when you hopefully like submit one to another and say, well, all right, but you know what? I'm going to be watching you. That's not joy. I don't know what that is. That's, that's carnality, I think. You're about getting down to the wire here of selecting a new senior pastor. I'll be watching you from Denver. See how much joy is here. 
Because the more joyous you are, I'm going to say with great, great objectiveness, look at their, look at their unity. One side's not saying, oh, crud, we wanted this guy or we wanted that guy or we should have looked at this guy who never submitted his resume. What is all that? We took the doctrine of the church, the ecclesiology, if you please, the study of church work. We acted according to Acts chapter 15, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, and we elected a transition team, those who would represent us, those who we prayed for and continue to pray for, to counsel and guide. We gave him the authority to pick, bring a candidate here, and then we're going to let him come for a week. He's going to preach two Sundays. Both Sundays on the second Sunday, we'll vote him up or down. And I can tell you that transition team wants to come to you in a unified way. Unity. Doctrine. Criticism. Correction. And training in righteousness. And the reason for that is why? That the man of God may be equipped. Equipped for every good work. That's why we do this. Every good work. Finding a new pastor is a good work. Raising our kids is a good work. Teaching about how others should find their spiritual gift is a good work. Finding out about uh, what it means to be a good husband and a good wife, that's a good work. And Scripture gets us there. But what's the reason for, for giving us adequate and equipping in every good work? Is so that we might be effective. That's the first reason. It's for effectiveness. Well prepared at every point. <laughs> I was thinking about old Hank Hanegraaff. You ever seen, heard him on the radio? The Bible answer man? <laughs> He's a bit abrupt at times, isn't he? <laughs> Sometimes I wish a lot of us would like to be, when we're asked a question, that we would have the chapter and the verse, and not just that, but the total understanding. Well, in order to do that, we have to be men and women who search the Scriptures for those things. And want to know the answer. Are hungering, like we talked about in the Beatitudes, blessed are they who hunger and thirst. Not just to have a snack appetite, but a banquet appetite for the Word of God. And then the second reason for, the, for, for, for this is that we might be equipped. Wow. I want to be equipped to do everything that I've been called to do. And let me remind you how Scripture uses this term, good works or works. It always talks about a, a saved person. Why? Because a Christian can't do the kind of work that the Bible wants. The Bible is a game changer in all of our life. And this morning, my, my dear friend, I want to just impress upon you. You can tell that today is a very serious day for me, and I mean it to be serious. Because the Word of God is the heart of every, at the core value of everything we do. It drives everything in this church. But that should come as great relief so that it could drive everything in your life. The Word of God, it doesn't take much either to change, to be a game changer. 
When Jacob DeShazer went as one of Jimmy Doolittle's raiders on Japan on the day of April 18, 1942, he was an atheist. He was captured and imprisoned by the Japanese. He saw two of his companions shot by a firing squad. He saw another die of starvation. During those long months, he pondered the question, is why did he hate the Japanese so much and why did the Japanese hate him? So during his captivity, DeShazer persuaded one of his guards to loan him a copy of a Bible. And they just said no. But he kept at it. He was persistent day after day after day. Finally, one of the guards came in and threw a Bible right in his face. Said, here, it's yours for three weeks and then I'm coming to get it. And so he had that for possession of that Bible for three weeks. And then the guard came and got it. But during that time, he read as if he were drinking at a fire hose. During that time, he became a devout Christian. He began to understand the reason for his survival, and he began to find the reason for why he needed to love the Japanese. His conversion also included learning some Japanese words that would treat his, his captors with respect, which had a profound effect upon his captors. They began to return the favor. After his release, he, went to, he entered Seattle Pacific uh, college, a Christian college, and began to study to become a missionary. And he eventually returned to Japan with his wife Florence in 1948. DeShazer, the Doolittle Raider who bombed Nagoya, he also met Captain Mitsu Fukado, who led the attack on Pearl Harbor. They became close friends. Fukado became a Christian in 1950. Did you know that? after reading a track written about DeShazer and the impact of the Bible on his life. And then he spent the rest of his life being a missionary in Asia. On one occasion, DeShazer and Fukado preached together as Christian missionaries in Japan. In 1959, DeShazer moved to Nagoya to establish a Christian church in the city he had bombed. Three weeks in the Word of God. The inerrant, inspired Word of God changed his life, changed the country, changed the nation. What's it doing in your life? I hope it's a core value. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. Oh God, give us a hungering and thirsting for your Word. And now as we take communion, as we take a moment to ponder our own spiritual well-being, as we make right anything that's in our life that needs to be made right, before we come up and take of the elements of this sacred table, may people know that this is not the table of Dillon Community Church. This is the table of Jesus Christ. And all who know him personally are welcome to this table. But you want us to come clean before you. So if there's any unconfessed sin in our life right now, anything at all that needs to be dealt with, Lord, I pray that we deal with it before we partake of these elements. And even if that, even if that element in our life is kind of a real blasé attitude in our own life about the Word of God, Lord, I pray that we bring that to you today and say, Lord, today is a new day. Today I want that at the very core of my life. So, Lord, you hear these prayers. 
You hear us as we instruct one another with the Word of God as it plays out. Oh God, let us not take this Word lightly. Let it be the fountain of life in our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.